0: We're now going to spend some time in the Scriptures together. Uh, My name is Dave, and I'm the senior pastor, one of the pastors on the team here. I get to do most of the preaching. Hold on. This is the tricky part. There we go. I got it. Okay. Um, We are so glad to have you with us. If I haven't met you yet in person, I would love to meet you. uh, If you get a chance to say hello after the service. Um, before we start looking at the scriptures together, I want to say thank you for your generosity. Uh, some of you are new, so this is meaningless to you, but those of you that have been a part of the church and been giving financially, supporting the church financially, thank you so much. We came in above what we asked for in 2020, which is crazy. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, I think, you know, we were a little behind most of the year. I think there were some of you that were extra generous as the year was was uh, ending, so we thank you for that. Thank you for all of you that gave faithfully throughout the year. Um, we appreciate it. And that's an amazing thing. And your giving enables us to uh, share the word with the city and with the world. So we take the funds that you give us. We preach the word. We encourage you to train up and grow in your own use of your gifts and impact your sphere of influence. We send money to missionaries. We do all kinds of things with that. But I just want to say thank you for your generosity. And thank you so very much for helping us keep going in a in a crazy year. I'm I'm almost I'm getting close to 50 years old. I'm about to turn 48, okay? I'll just let you know how old I am. And I have never, never lived through a year this crazy before. It's nuts. It's insane. Uh, maybe, maybe the older ones have, have seen something worse than this, but I've never seen anything like this. Um, so we're thankful. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity and for being a part. Thank you for sharing your gifts too, not just financial gifts, but your service. You're helping us out Tag teaming, calling people, loving people, serving your neighbors, all of that. We thank you for, for keeping the gospel moving. Um, we're in a little two week mini series right now. And so, both weeks, we're focusing on a bigger doctrine called the Imago Day. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before, Imago Day. If you were here last week, you heard it. It means the image of God. What this refers to is that God made humans to reflect his image, he made us to show the world what he's like, his love his justice, his grace. And what that means is that all human beings, whether they look like us or not, whether they come from our neighborhood or not, they're all owed dignity and respect. So moving backwards into the womb, last week we said that there is sanctity of life. Last week was Sanctity of Life Sunday. We used Dr. Seuss's word and said, a person is a person no matter how small. We owe dignity and respect to life even in the womb. And we looked at Psalm 139. This week, we're gonna think about the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and recognize that a person is a person no matter what ethnicity. And remember how Martin Luther King called our culture to that. Now, uh, this has gotta be clear, and this is something that I do with every funeral, every memorial service I do. What I do is I say, we know this person wasn't perfect, right? We know Martin Luther King wasn't the sinless perfect person, but we wanna give thanks for what he did. We wanna give thanks for what he called us to. The scripture's real clear in Matthew 5 that as we let our light shine before men, people are going to see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. Well, if I get to do your funerals, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to say, they weren't perfect. (laughs) We all know they weren't perfect. But there's some things they did that inspired us, that showed us a picture of God, that imaged God for us. And we want to give thanks for Martin Luther King and his heritage of pulling us towards biblical ideas of justice and equality for all ethnicities. And so as we think about that, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a very specific text in the Bible that shows us what unity should look like in the context of the church. So it's kind of a different context, right? MLK was talking about society at large. We're going to say, we're a church. How do we pull off unity? What does that look like? So the sermon today is going to be from John 17. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John 17, John chapter 17, Uh, I think if you don't have a Bible and you wanna grab one of the black ones under the chairs, it's page, I think it's page 900. You can double check me there. If you have your device, just turn to John 17. We're gonna be in verses 10 through 26, so looking at primarily the second half of this passage. And I'm calling the sermon today, functional unity. Functional unity. The big idea that I think is helpful is a biblical concept in the Bible repeatedly, four different places. We're told that the body of Christ is, is made up of diverse, different parts, but we are one body. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We're doing the work of Jesus in the world. And a really sweet image for this that I've seen lately is my oldest daughter just sent me a picture of my grandbaby beginning to walk. And it was glorious, of course, you know. It's my grandbaby, and I will show you pictures after the service if you wanna see, okay? Uh, But she's taking her first steps. And she's about 11 months old. And this is a huge contrast to what she was like when she was a newborn. Any of you ever been around a newborn baby? They they can't do anything, right? (laughs) They just kind of like their heads floppy. They can't control their arms very well. They can't track with you very good with their eyes. But this 11-month-old baby, she's like, she's accomplishing functional unity. She's beginning to pull her diverse body parts together so that she can function. In another, you know, three, four weeks, she'll probably be mowing the lawn for her mom and dad. You know, she's going to start accomplishing things, I joke. But eventually, right, that's what this text is about, okay? This text is about the body of Christ coming together in all of our immaturity and functioning as one to pull off the mission of Jesus in the world. We are his hands and feet in the world. His program is for us to do his will And to exhibit unity, but a functional unity, not just like a kumbaya, don't we all feel better kind of unity, but actually accomplish something, right? So we're going to try to take it down from politics and global stuff and just focusing on what's the church supposed to do? Like, how are we supposed to look, right? So John 17, we're looking in on kind of final words of Jesus right before he goes to the cross. So in context, he's talking about, I'm about to leave, right? Like I'm about to die. I'm going to rise from the dead and then I'm going to go up to heaven, So he's going to be making references to this kind of thing, and he's praying to his heavenly father, and he's talking about the unity that they have as one God, and how he wants his people, the church, us, to have unity as well. So John 17, starting in verse 10. Starting in verse 10, hold on, forgot the glasses. Here we go. John 17, verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. them. This is the word of God. As we look to the scriptures, we come back to it week after week because we believe that it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. But we need the Holy Spirit to meet us as we hear, listen, study, and obey, that the Spirit would empower us to make sense of this to follow what he's told us to do. And so I'm gonna pray that his spirit would meet us here, that this would be a supernatural event that we're taking place in here, that God would be with us and we'd hear and listen and obey his word. Let me pray. God, we pray that your spirit would meet us here. We hear your word. Will you make it real in our hearts? Will you help us to hear? Will you set aside our, our blind spots? Will you open our eyes to ways that we need to change? Will you show us new things that we need to see? God, we thank you that you love us. You've proved it by sending Jesus. Help us now to follow Jesus in real life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we remember MLK, two things that really stand out to me that tie in with the points. One is that he operated out of a security in his relationship with God that enabled him to take risks. And we're going to see that our own security in God's love for us enables us to take risks and be Sent ones in the same way that Jesus was a sent one for us. Another thing that's really important is MLK's, I think, most unifying statements, visions, and speeches were biblical. Again, we don't agree with everything he would have said. You know, we're going to have different opinions on things. But the stuff that really rallied people together, and this is what's amazing, even rallied together Christians and non Christians oftentimes, were biblical visions of justice and equality. And so we're also going to see that in the the text here. He talks about sanctifying us in the truth and how the truth, the scriptures, are going to be what shapes us. So three major points as we move through the text and try to understand, okay, we're not political leaders, I'm not MLK, but we're a church. What does it look like for a church to have functional unity? We're going to see three things in the text. The first thing is unity is secured by God. The word that appears again and again is Uh, Guarding and keeping, that's the repetition in the first section. It's secured by God. It's what God does for us that enables us to launch and pursue unity for others. The second thing we see is that unity is defined by Scripture. Unity is defined by Scripture. We're in a divided age. There's more opinions, more science, more facts, more authorities than ever before. We're in a new era of pluralism. Pluralism means there's no reigning ideology in our culture. There's just multiple ideologies. We've got to define unity by Scripture. What does Scripture say? What does God's Word say? What does the truth say? And then finally, unity leads to rebirth. That's a really amazing promise that makes the church different than a political organization, makes the church different than something good that might be happening in, in the community. The church actually gets to have the great privilege of bringing new life into the world through proclaiming the message of Jesus. What this text says is as we're unified, that message is believable. That message is more received, more we'll believe as we are unified. Instead of holding on to our preferences, our tribe, our culture, our ethnicity, and making that first, we say, No, what Jesus has done for me, that comes first. I might still have a tribe, I might still have preferences and style and things I love and I'll celebrate those, but first, I'm a child of God. And as we're unified in that, then the world more clearly sees the gospel. They see Jesus, and that's what it says in the text. So, unity is secured by God, unity is defined by Scripture, and unity leads to rebirth. So, first point, unity is secured by God. We see this in verses 10 through 15. God keeps us, God guards us, that enables us to be unified all mine are yours, he says in verse 10, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's saying he says it in present tense, I'm no longer in the world. He actually is. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. Then he's going to go away, right? But he's, he's talking like, I'm about to go. That's, how, that's what he's trying to say here. So Jesus is with the disciples and they've found forgiveness and grace and love. They found their Messiah. They found their savior, but he's about to go. And so he's praying to the heavenly father saying, keep them, guard them. I've been guarding them. Now I'm gonna go back and be with you in heaven. Now, Now we as the Trinity need to guard them while I'm not physically present anymore. And so we see again the security that he's praying for and promising us at the same time. And this is what's going to make them one. Keep them in your name. This is the end of verse 11. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So here's the deal. We can't be one unless God's holding on to us. We can't make ourselves one. We can't like fight and scrap in the flesh for oneness. It comes from God. It's a gift of his grace. We have to receive it from him. So we always have to be looking back to God as our source of security and provision Verse 12 says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, that's kind of mind blowing. We don't really understand how to make sense of that, right? But he's saying, here's the emphasis, I've kept them, I've guarded them. He's like, oh yeah, there was that one (laughs) that betrayed me. He's the son of destruction, right? But I kept the rest of them. And he's showing us that we have a security in his keeping of us. How do we make sense of the greatest evil that's ever happened, the son of destruction being a part of God's plan to bring about the greatest good that's ever happened, Jesus dying for our sins and saving us? I'll just be frank, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of all that. I'm not a philosopher. I've studied it long enough to you know, tap out and say, all right, I give up, I'm not a philosopher, I'm just gonna trust Jesus. And so here he's saying, I've kept them. I've guarded them. Well, not that one guy. Not Judas, but I've kept all the rest of them. I've guarded them. Not one has been lost that the scripture might be fulfilled. Verse 13 says, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. So scripturally, the people of God are defined by belonging to God, and the world hates God, and the world means just generally those that that don't belong to Jesus, that don't have faith in God, right? In general, we're all that way until we give up, we surrender, and we trust in Jesus. We hear the gospel preached, we see he is good, I can trust him, he's forgiven me, we give our lives to him, and we convert from those that hate him to those that love him and trust him and start doing what he asks us to do. But once we convert and we start following Jesus, we have to recognize, okay, now we're gonna be hated just like the world hates God. And that's hard for us because frankly, we've been a little spoiled in our culture. I started in full-time ministry in the 90s uh, when it wasn't completely horrible to be a Christian. <laughs> I feel like our culture has shifted in the last five years from it, it used to be just kind of weird to be a Christian, but Christians are nice moral people and, and you know we like them. It's kind of shifting now. Our culture is changing to where Christians are seen as immoral, as repugnant. There's just a shift, a subtle shift taking place. And so now we are actually entering into a time where we are probably more clearly living out the way it was in the first century, that we're hated for following Jesus. Now, I don't wanna be all doom and gloom about it. I think those things go up and down and it's gonna, it's gonna change probably multiple times in our lifetime. But what he's saying here is, you'll be hated for not loving the world, but instead loving God But what's God gonna do? He's gonna keep you. He's gonna secure you. Jesus says, Father, hold on to them, keep them. Don't take them out of the world. His mission is for us to be sent into the world the way Jesus was. Why? To share the good news of the hope that we have in Jesus. We've got work to do. Do you see that? Do you see that you're simultaneously secured by God at the same time that life is difficult, life is hard, It's not a health and wealth dream of everything being perfect for us. There's disease, there's sin, there's brokenness. We live in a broken world. We're gonna suffer. As long as we're in this world of suffering, we're going to suffer while we're on mission for Jesus. Just like Jesus was sent from the perfection of heaven into the brokenness of this world to suffer for us. We get to live that out. Obviously, at a much smaller scale, we're not Jesus, but we're following in his footsteps. We will suffer as we share the good news of Jesus. But as we suffer, we can take heart that we're secured by God. So as we see ourselves more and more as missionaries being sent, we have to always remember, but it's not my strength, it's not how great I am, it's because God's got a hold of me that I can do this at all. Does that make sense? Don't say, I'm gonna be so awesome that I'm gonna overcome all the evil in the world and save people. No, it's God securing you and holding on to you, God saving you that enables you to do that. I grabbed a picture of a, of a daddy holding a baby's hand. I keep fixating on my grandbaby, sorry. I'll show you pictures afterwards if you want to see them. Um, and there's just something beautiful about a dad holding on to his baby, right? In those first days where maybe, maybe the child has the instinct to grab a finger, but the child is certainly not strong enough to hold on by any means to their parents. It's the strength of the parents holding on to the child that secures them. It's a... Beautiful picture. In the Gospel of John, we're told that our security, our salvation is Jesus holding on to us, the Father holding on over top of that. Nothing can snatch us out of their hands. John 10, 28, 29 says it this way. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. God's got you. Do you believe that? Do you believe even when you lose all your money, God's got you and you're on mission for him? Do you believe when everything falls apart, when people turn on you, God's got you? You're secure in him and you're on mission? Do you believe that he's taking care of you and he has a purpose for you to love others, not to fight, not to burn down buildings, not to kick in doors, but to love and serve others in Jesus' name? As we are more secure in God, we will give up the means of this world, right? We saw this tension when Jesus was arrested, happens later in the story. Jesus is arrested and Peter, the strongest, the manliest of the disciples, grabs a sword, hacks off a dude's ear. And what does Jesus say? That's not how this is going to work. That's not how we're going to do this, Peter. And we have to be reminded of that as well. And the way for us to to do ministry the way that God has called us to do ministry through the proclamation of the gospel and serving people in love is to remember that we're secure in him. If we forget that we're secure in him, then we we go off the rails and we forget all this other stuff. So we have to recognize that we're in a world more than ever that's telling us to be insecure. Matter of fact, we have the largest um, corporations in the world right now spending billions of dollars on artificial intelligence whose sole purpose is to make you upset, insecure, and angry at other people. Do you know that? Have you seen any of the documentaries on social media and how it works? It's amazing. We're moving into this great future, and all the sci-fi shows when I was a kid taught me that the artificial intelligence was gonna like take over the world. It's not taking over the world. It's just making us hate each other. That's, that's what it's doing. Like that, it's pretty amazing technology, but it's still primitive enough that all it can really do is amplify our concerns, our insecurities, our anxieties, we have to always be going back to the gospel and recognize, no, I'm, I'm secure in God. I'm secure, and I know that because he sent Jesus for me. I know who I am because God has saved me. So number one application, what would you do? How would you live differently if you really believed this? If you were absolutely secure, if you didn't see yourself as an orphan who had to fight, scratch, and claw to survive, but you saw yourself as secured by God, what kind of risks would you take to tell more people about Jesus? What kind of risks would you take to serve other people in love? How would you live differently if you really believed, if I really believed that we were secured by God and His grace? The other thing I think is really important for us to think about is how uh, God has put people already around us that we are put there to secure, right? Now, obviously, God is ultimate security, but God has uh, given us Circles of influence, spheres of authority, jurisdictions, right? It's easiest to see with parents and children. But he's put people around us that look up to us. He's put friends in our circle that we can care for. He's put neighbors around us. He's, he's put cousins, uncles, aunts. You know, he's put people in your circle of influence. And it's like, your job is to help them to be secure. That's your job. And, and you do that out of the overflow of, of God has secured you. So you're going to be the messenger being sent into their world that's going to point them back to, not to yourself, securing them, but, but to God. So God is the one as you serve them, as you love them. The other thing I want us to think about beyond just our circle of influence, right? Who's in our home, who's in our workplace, who's our neighbors, is to think outside that. And one of the most common ways the Bible calls us to think about the, the farther out reach beyond our circle of influence is this trifecta of the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. As we think about true unity, the church is always the organization that exists for those outside of the organization, right? So on the one hand, we're unified with each other because we love God, and so we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But we're always thinking about those that don't know Jesus yet. And the Bible's always saying, who's the orphan? Who's the widow? Who's the foreigner? Who's the outsider? And so we've always got to be looking out at the same time that we're looking in. And God's gonna give you practical opportunities. You just pray and just say, God, show me who. Because we can get overwhelmed we're like, I've gotta love the whole world and fix everybody all the time. No, just say, God, who's in my circle of influence? Who's someone on the fringes? Who's someone on the outside that I can help, that I can serve, that I can be a blessing to, that I can make an impact for? And we do that because our security comes from God. So we have something to give. The second point now is that unity is defined by Scripture. Unity is defined by Scripture. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify means to set apart and made holy, right? Um, we have the word saint. Uh, traditionally, the old traditional Catholic church just used saint for like the rock stars of the Christian faith. The Bible uses it for everyone that belongs to Jesus. So if you belong to Jesus, you're a saint, which means you're set apart and holy by knowing Jesus. You're perfectly acceptable in God's sight. He delights in you because he sees you through the lens of his very own son. He doesn't just love you and forgive you, but he likes you. He's excited about you. He wants to spend time with you. And that sanctifies you. That begins to change you. That begins to make you more and more obedient to him. We stumble, we fall, but we get up and we say, okay, I'm gonna gonna follow him because I I trust him and his word is good. And so more and more, we're sanctifying ourselves by the word. We're looking to the word and saying, you know what? I I see that God loves me. He's shown me grace. He's forgiven me in the cross. So I'm going to go to the word and try to do what it says. Even some of these things I don't like. Some of these things seem hard or seem beyond me, but I'm going to try to obey what the scripture says. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's saying, I've I've set myself apart, but we're going to set them apart, right? We as followers of Jesus will be set apart as we obey the truth, the word, the scriptures, the binding together of the prophets and the apostles' words, the, this one book that's made up of 66 smaller books that testify to Jesus being the word made flesh. He says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, talking about his disciples, the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us, right? That's us and future generations of believers. So this is not just a special thing for the first followers of Christ. This is for all followers of Christ that we would be sanctified, shaped, uh, healed, redeemed, transformed by the word more and more every day, more and more every day. Um, I think this is one of the things, and I mentioned this before, that made Martin Luther King Jr.'s work so effective is he kept calling us back to the prophetic visions of the scripture, of the truth. As I said, we wanna go even beyond that and say, what does he say for the church? Not just for society, but what does he tell us to do for the church? Um, it's interesting. The other thing that that really makes me sad is I think through this whole thing with Martin Luther King and see him as a lens is Martin Luther King also would have said and believed things that we didn't agree with. A lot of you, if if you don't know, historically, he went to a, a seminary that doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which we would teach, we can trust it, it's authoritative. Seminary he went to didn't teach that, and so he didn't fully support that in the same way we would have wanted him to, right? And I don't know all the reasons why, but I know one reason we could think about why he went to a seminary that didn't teach the authority of Scripture. A lot of the seminaries that taught the authority of Scripture in the 50s, didn't allow black students. And so we could say, even though they were saying that they believed in the authority of Scripture, they were not living it. They were violating the authority of Scripture. And that's where I want us to, again, go back to Scripture and say, we've always got to be reforming and looking back to the definitions of Scripture. Because what those seminaries were doing and what those Christian groups were doing is they were letting their own cultural preferences define the boundaries of Christianity more than the word of God. And in doing that, they failed. The word of God sets the standard. We look to the scripture to define for us what is true and what is not. So we think about the word define. I think about dictionaries. I used to love to do vocabulary when I was a kid, look up what words mean, look up what other words mean. There's this book we had when I was a kid. I know they don't have them anymore, but they're called dictionaries. Raise your hand if you've seen a dictionary before. Okay, some of you have seen these. I've got a picture of one here on the screen. So you open up this book and it's in alphabetical order and it just tells you what words mean, right? It defines for you. Now, now we've got apps on our phones and you know, who knows if the robots are tricking us with those or not, I don't know. But, but they, they now tell us what words mean. Well, in the spiritual life and in learning to be the church that God has called us to be, the way we define truth is, is with the scripture. And so do you know the scripture? right? Like we have a church that's, that's built around uh, me most of the time, other substitute preachers, whoever's here, whoever's teaching week after week, teaching from the Scripture, right? And so we think this is a platform to build a healthy church off of. We're going to keep coming back to the Scripture instead of, instead of it being a, around my soapbox, right? E- even when we do topical sermons like this week, you know, I want to think about ethnicity. It's Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look to a text that talks about unity so that we can Think of it through the lens of Scripture. So we're going to do that work. We commit to do that for you. If we stop doing that, stop going here, okay? We're going to be Scripture-based. We're going to define things by Scripture. But we need you to do that as well. You help me to be a better teacher. Like, if you're reading your Bible, then I know I can't pull the wool over your eyes, right? I know you're going to say, uh, that thing you said, that's not really in here, right? Right? You need to be people of the Word as well, so you can hold me accountable and hold the leaders of our church accountable and, and be a presence of God's truth in the world. We're all together, unified, one body with many parts, being sanctified and shaped by the truth of Scripture. Now, this also relates to ethnic debates because those ethnic debates overlap with a lot of our political debates, and what I want to encourage you to do is always be people of the Word first. First. Whenever you choose your political party or your favorite sociologist, that's always secondary to the truth of Scripture. I saw someone give me a funny look. Yeah, nobody really has a favorite sociologist, right? But when we're choosing those theories, none of them hold up perfectly to Scripture. And so what we have to do is we, you know, we read this book by the, the godless professor or sociologist or politician, and we compare it to Scripture, Right? We don't have to be afraid to read these other books. It's okay to read other books. It's okay to learn from these people. Uh, there, there are two like, competing worldviews, two famous authors in our culture that represent kind of the extremes in political life in America. One guy named Karl Marx, you may not have heard of him before. Another uh, lady named Ayn Rand. Um, they both write some stuff, some of it's interesting. And we'd probably agree with some of it because some of it accidentally agrees with scripture but the scripture is what helps us decide what's true and what's not true when we read these godless authors. When we read people that have theories about science and the world and politics and economics, we say, well, what does scripture say? And that's our Supreme Court. That's how we sift these things. That's how we judge these things. So we, on the one hand, don't wanna have this kind of scared fundamentalist posture where we can't read anything that's not written by someone that already agrees with everything we say, right? We, we don't have to be afraid of stuff, but we also have to do the hard work of coming back to Scripture. Well, what does the Bible say about this? Well, what does the Bible say about this topic and that topic? And let's, let's filter it by the Scripture. And that's going to enable us to then actually be unified. That's what he's saying here. He's saying as long as we're sanctified by the truth, there will be real unity in the world and we'll have something to invite others to. One more thing what I see a lot of times in our political climate is that we're lying each other instead of gospeling each other. We're just yelling about everything that's wrong. And there is a place to declare the truth of God's law. This is God's standard of justice and righteousness. That's part of what the church is to do. We are to say, this is what God has said to do. But don't leave out the gospel. Don't leave out the good news. Because if you just say the law, there's gonna be this kind of accidental implication that you're actually keeping the law and you are not. None of you are, I know you are all all pretty well, right? Even those of you that I don't know, I can say you're not keeping the law because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So share the law, but, but don't share the law apart from the gospel. Here's the law, here's God's perfect standard of justice. I don't fully measure up to it, here's my hope that Jesus has taken the penalty of my sin for himself on the cross. And that's what enables me to love other people that are different than me because I'm not saved by being a part of my tribe. I'm not saved by being a part of this culture. I'm not saved by this economic theory or this political tribe or this educational system or this type of music or this type of food or whatever. You can go farther and farther down to secondary and tertiary cultural issues, right? We're not saved by those things. We're saved by Jesus. And, and this is defined by Scripture. So a way we can live this out is by just having the mindset that I'm always going to compare everything I hear with Scripture, but also memorizing the Scripture yourself. I really want to encourage you to memorize Scripture as we talk about talking about gospel and not just law. Romans 6.23 is a great one-verse place to kind of capture that there's judgment for sin, but there's the free, gracious gift of life in Christ Jesus. That's a great verse for us to memorize. I encourage you to uh, memorize Romans 6.23. Also, there's a cool little app that you can get on your phone called Life on Mission. Life on Mission. and It enables you to do the three circles summary of the gospel story. The three circles summary is a way of summarizing the whole story of the Bible. And the three circles are like the three different worlds that we know. The first world was a perfect creation. Second world is the broken creation we live in now that's fallen into sin. The third world is the redeemed creation of Jesus saving us. And so it's just a helpful little app where you can kind of flip and it shows you uh, a way to present the truth of the gospel. So we want to be defined by scripture, defined by the gospel, defined by the truth. A book that I like to recommend uh, on this note is a book called The Gospel-Centered Life the gospel-centered life is really helpful in helping you distinguish the categories of law and gospel. The the law, the justice of God is important, and we don't want to throw it away, but we also have to understand that we're saved by grace, not by perfectly keeping the law. Only Jesus perfectly kept the law. So this is a really helpful book to help you work through uh, those situations, especially in, in today's divided Times. And actually, I'm going to talk about three other books that don't go with this point, but I meant to talk about them up front. Did I talk about these already? Okay, I totally skipped it. It was like out of sight behind the pulpit. Um, these are just on the broader issue of ethnicity in the church, right? Um, so, what I'm talking about in our text is way more specific, but these are just three books I highly recommend to anybody interested in learning more. The first one goes into some of the details about the history of our country, civil rights movement. It's written by John Perkins, who is an African American pastor who fled Mississippi when things were really bad in the South, but he didn't know Jesus. He went to California where there was more freedom. He found Jesus in California, and then he felt like God was calling him to move back to Mississippi. Even when there was a lot of injustice and inequality, he came back with the gospel to Mississippi. And this just tells his story of trying to use the Bible, the gospel, church planting, loving people to make an impact in a broken world. So it's a really helpful book because he's an example of kind of our kind of preacher who loves the word and preaches the Bible, um, just did fantastic ministry. If you're familiar with, there's a Christian worldview magazine called World Magazine, and they just promoted him as like their Daniel of the year, talking about someone who made an impact in culture. And so that's a great book. Another book that's more just purely theological that talks about the theme of ethnicity and how God is creating one new humanity in Christ out of all the ethnicities This is called One New Man. It's by Jarvis Williams, really great book. Just kind of outlines the theological truths of this is what the Apostle Paul says, this is what the New Testament says, this is what the Bible says about ethnicities in Scripture. And then the last book, man, this is way down the rabbit hole of policy. There's been a lot of um, concern over reforms in the criminal justice system this year. And so I started studying this. It is hard to understand, but it's a nice third-way book of a Christian author saying, Here's some things that are broken in our criminal justice system. Here's some things that I think we could fix. It's not coming from this political side or that political side, but just trying to think through it from a Christian reform concept. It's called Ending overcriminalization and Mass Incarceration. It's by Anthony Bradley. This is helpful as well if you're wanting to get more involved in just policy and, you know, how should we think about these things in society? Okay, that was our little commercial intermission for books. So, Unity is, uh, excuse me, unity is defined by scripture. We wanna memorize scripture. We wanna share scripture. And the last thing I would say about this before we move on is just doing this in relationship with other people. Uh, We have opportunities to do this in relationship with other people like celebrate recovery groups or women's ministry Bible study groups or men's breakfasts or going to an existing small group or class or creating a group. And we really have been pushing this during the pandemic. Find one or two friends and just say, let's read some scripture and pray for each other. Share how our week is going. We've got a little thing on our small groups page on the website, and it's called three by five groups. Get three people, do these five things. Share your high for the week, your low for the week. Read scripture, share how you can apply it and pray for each other. And so we encourage you to do that. Grab a person or two where you can define your lives by scripture. Okay, third point, unity leads to rebirth. Unity leads to rebirth. And this is the unique privilege that the church has that's different from all the other community organizations, right? Like the YMCA is doing great stuff in the world, and you know schools are doing great stuff in the world, but the church gets to be unified in such a way that we help people to see Jesus and people are born again. John 1 defines this as born not of natural processes, it's not a physical birth, it's new life because we've trusted in Jesus. And so in verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's saying that oneness that I'm praying for in the church will help the world believe that you've sent me. I did a whole series on unity in the spring from 1 Corinthians, recommend that series to you. It's through the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. And again and again, Paul talks about how we've got to distinguish between The gospel and our preferences. When you put your preferences first, when I put my preferences first, it clouds the gospel. It makes it harder for people to see what's really important, right? And again, it's impossible for us to live, you know, without a culture. There's no way we can live without a style and without a music and without a food preference. Those preferences will always be there, but we've always got to be elevating the gospel and the truth of God. And as we do that, people will see more clearly the truth of the gospel, I grabbed a picture of a one-way sign. And the question is, is your culture pointing to Jesus or is it pointing back to you? That's the question. Is our church pointing to Jesus or is it pointing to us? Are we saying, look at us, look how awesome we are, look at how great we are. Are we pointing to Jesus? He goes on in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23 I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So, a perfect, the word perfect can be mature, complete, fulfillment, kind of what we were intended for. This is like what we were designed to be this kind of oneness, this perfect oneness, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So in case you're like, I don't know about this, people believe the gospel because of unity thing, he, he says it twice, <laughs> just to clarify for, for us. When we're unified, people see the gospel more clearly. When we're fighting and scrapping, it's harder for people to see the gospel. This is true in marriage as well. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 5. The more we love and serve one another in marriage, the more the world sees a picture of Jesus instead of just us and our own junk. And so this is true in the church Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. He's saying, that's going to be part of it. We're looking forward to that. Romans 8, we are groaning and longing for the perfection of heaven. We want to be there with him. Paul says in Philippians 1, of course, I'd rather be dead and in heaven than here on earth. But God has called me to be here on earth for fruitful labor, to serve you. That's the same calling that you and I have. Like we're not apostles writing the Bible, but we have the same calling. We're sent into the world just as Jesus was, just as Paul was. And that's hard for us. We live in a health and wealth world where we, we want all the pleasure. We want all the relaxation. We want all the money. But that's not really our purpose here and now. Our purpose is to serve others with the gospel. That's what he's called us for. We have a work assignment. We're missionaries. We're sent ones. Even if you're not an official missionary sent across the world, you're a missionary sent to a broken world here and now to testify to the goodness of God. And as you recognize, oh yeah, that's my primary mission. My secondary mission is to buy a house and find a job and do the normal things that humans do. But I gotta do that in such a way that I'm pointing to Jesus. So as we are one, More people will see who Jesus is. Verse 25 says, "O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's saying, this is how it works. Father, you love me. The perfect unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father loves us so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, to take our sin. He sent Jesus into the world. He left the perfection of heaven, Philippians 2 tells us. He entered into the brokenness of this world for you and for me. What's he doing? He's sending us as well. You're not here by accident. I found over the years that a lot of people that live in clean Texas think it was a big accident. Have you ever, have you ever thought that? He sent you here on purpose. He, he has you here on orders. It's to be unified with the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ despite our differences of preference and tribe and culture, so that we can point the world to Jesus. So how do we do this? Um, the predominant vision I started with, the whole, you know, the body with different parts coming together, um, functioning, being the hands of, and feet of Jesus in the world, that, that's the predominant way that it's typified in the scriptures. So it's when a church comes together, and the church is not just the preacher, the church is not just the elders or Uh, the deacons or the Sunday school teachers or the nursery director, the church is the whole body, the whole congregation, all using their gifts, all using uh, what God has given them to be on mission together. Now, I just want to acknowledge that there's kind of like a corporate grace Bible church unity and mission, and then there's a worldwide mission, right? And we just want to recognize both of those. There's like all Christians everywhere are unified. God actually saved me through that kind of unity. There were different Christians in different places that belonged to different churches and I saw them saying the same thing. Testifying to the goodness of, of God's laws but talking about how we'd fallen to live up you know, to what God has called us to but, but the hope that we have in Jesus saving us from our sins. I started seeing that story through this Christian's life and through that Christian's life and through this Christian's life and so that supernatural unity of different Christians helped me to believe the gospel. And you can do that even outside of these walls, right? As you go to work and you love your friends and neighbors, as you uh, care for people at the school that you work at or at the office that you go to or wherever it may be, you're testifying to Jesus and the people around you that don't know Jesus are gonna see you testifying to Jesus and they're gonna see somebody that goes to another church testifying to Jesus and they're gonna, they're gonna see the supernatural unity that we all belong to Jesus. So that, that's a part of this. I don't wanna forget that. But now I want to say there's actually a, a local local body, right? We are one church called Grace Bible Church, and we also are to work together as one body with many parts. So it kind of works at the global level, but it also works at a local level. We're a church, and we, we need your help, right? So if you just attend, we want to invite you to get more involved. You can serve here on our welcome team or on one of our tech teams. We need help running sound. We need help running cameras. We need help welcoming people. Uh, Lucas Turner is our new... Welcome director, he would love to meet you and talk to you about that. Uh, we need help online, right? For those of you that are uh, still immunocompromised and not wanna be here in person, there are ways to help online as well. You can email our office, office at bgrace.org, to jump in and be a part of what we're doing here at Grace Bible Church. We wanna use your gifts to serve together in unity, to proclaim the message of Jesus to Colleen and to the world. Spend the vast majority of our funds to reach Colleen for Jesus but we also set aside 10% of all the money that comes in uh, for other organizations, for other evangelistic organizations in the area and across the world, church planting in other countries to share the gospel all over the place. So as you share your gifts with us here, that helps us to proclaim the gospel all over the world. Another couple of things that I wanna mention as we think about multi-ethnic tensions are two uh, biblical words that I think are really helpful. We come back to these time and time again. One is compassion. Uh, One of the best ways for us to reach across the divide of ethnicity and culture, and we all grew up in different places, is just the Christian virtue of compassion. Um, Jesus, as we're told again and again, Jesus felt compassion towards people. And that word in Greek literally means for your guts to be moved towards someone. And so what that means is that you would pause, lower your own emotional defenses long enough to say, wow, that was terrible wow, that hurts that you went through that. And you would listen to people's stories and you would care about other human beings. And that's a Christian virtue. That's something that we do because God cares for us. So we're willing to, to be in the muck with other people, to listen to their stories, to care for them, to cry with them, to hold their hands, uh, to, to be compassionate, to care. Jesus does it again and again, you know, do a word search and look at all the places where Jesus showed compassion to people. Another great New Testament word is hospitality. It means to love outsiders, to care for those that don't already belong to your circle, those that are outside of your tribe, your culture. As the Christian church is committed faithfully to compassion and hospitality, we're going to continue to grow into functional unity. We're going to continue to become what God has called us to be, to be a multi-ethnic people of God from every tongue and tribe. We're going to be fulfilling the ultimate vision of heaven in Revelation 5 and 7 where we see every tongue and tribe praising the Lord. That's going to happen more and more in the here and now. And as that happens, more and more people will see the truth of Jesus. They'll see who he is because that's a supernatural thing that we can't manipulate into reality. So pray for that, but take these common steps as well that we can take. I want to wrap up uh, here and just go back to the picture of, of my, my granddaughter walking. And like I said, I don't know if I told you this, but if you want to see pictures of my grandbaby, I'll show them to you after the service. Um, over the Christmas holidays, she was 10 months old. We got to see some walking. It was pretty exciting, right? But she's like really moving now. About 11 months old, we just got a new video the other day. And, and my son-in-law and my daughter are so excited for her, right? Um, She's taking these steps, and she's doing more walking than she ever did when she was here, and she's so excited, and her mommy and daddy are so excited for her, but I I just have to be frank with you. She's not very good at walking. Um, I'm way better at walking than she is. As a matter of fact, I'm really good at jumping, um, and I can use my arms and my hands while I walk, and she's not very good at that, Um, but as I thought about that, I just realized, isn't it crazy? Like, We just know instinctively when a baby is walking, you don't say, I can't believe you fell down. What a loser you are, right? You're like, look at this, you're walking, right? And then the baby kind of falls down and they're like, it's okay, right? This is what we do. We're like, it's okay. It's gonna be all right. You can get back up. And she keeps walking again. I want you to have that vision of God as your heavenly father looking down on you because we are gonna stumble. And just to be clear, a lot of times, we're not very good at walking. We're not very good at being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world sometimes. But we fall down on our butt and we get back up and, and God the Father says, I delight in you. I've proved that by sending Jesus for you. I've saved you. I've made you my own. I've adopted you in my family. I'm not giving up on you. I'm gonna cheer you on. And you're gonna grow into functional unity. You're gonna take next steps. And there will be setbacks. Setbacks but we'll keep moving forward because God is the one that secures us. He's the one that is changing us by his word. He's the one that is filling us by his spirit and enabling us to move forward as a church. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for this amazing privilege that we get to be your sons and daughters, that you you took our sin, you give us new life in Christ. Help us to trust you. And as we trust in you and the security that we can find only in your salvation. Help us to take the next steps, take the risks that you call us to. Empower us by your spirit, Lord. Help us to make an impact in a a crazy world that's changing every day. There's competing ideologies, competing claims for truth. We know that you are the truth. Help us to live that truth, to trust you, to delight in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.